and and then I panicked and then I realized that it was a mistake that I had made. So they had to chop out a whole chunk of the stair. The structural engineer had to come up with a detail, how to dowel in the new stair. It was a mess. It, it was so bad. And I had to coordinate all these people, right? Because now like it was my my mistake. So it was rough. I mean, I was I, I kind of beat myself up about it for a while. And uh, my boss at the time, he was he was amazing about it. And he had told me like the first or second day I was working for him, he's like, you're gonna make mistakes. He's like, but the quicker you own them, the better. And you know, I, I owned it right away. I walked into his office. I'm like, boss, I'm like, I screwed up. And he was like, what you do? <laughs> he was really amazing about it. He was like, well, this is a great opportunity for you to barter. He's like, go, go negotiate. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Hey, guys, it's Chris. Thank you so much for continuing to join me on the Fort Podcast. You're going to love today's episode. I have Antonia Batero with me today, who's the founder and principal at The Mad Project. That's mad with two Ds. We're going to talk a lot today about project management and construction management in the real estate industry. Her business, Mad Project, has experience ranging from large-scale multifamily conversions to ground-up development construction in Manhattan and she's been doing it for over 15 years. Today, we're gonna cover how to hire a GC, how to make a great contract with your GC, ways to save on project costs and do things early in a project that can make it more successful. We talk about how to hold contractors accountable to timelines, how to negotiate with contractors, her consulting business that she just launched and much more. So again, thank you for joining me today. Antonia, welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. I'm super excited. Yeah, I'm super excited to have you. Uh, really, really enjoyed following you on Twitter and and what you're doing, and especially in real estate. I think it's one of the things that sometimes isn't talked about as much, but is one of the most critical parts of the project being in construction. So let's just start out with who Antonia is and how did you become a wizard in project and construction management? <laughs> <laughs> well, so I have a super untraditional path to getting to where I am. I studied architecture and then I proceeded when I got licensed. And then I worked at a big firm in, in New York City in practicing architecture. And I was there for about three years or so. My intention was always actually to work on the development side. My parents were developers in Colombia. And so for me, I kind of grew up around it. Um, my mom, she was project manager for a good chunk or property manager for a good chunk of, of my teenage years and, and early adulthood. So I've always been around it. And I knew that that's kind of where I wanted to end up. And so for me, I felt like I just really needed to understand the technical bits of it. And so that I could build a building, right? Like to me, that was kind of, you know, I'm like, I really got to know this so that I can do this other thing. Um, and it's funny because I always get a lot of comments like, you know, if you wanted to do real estate, why'd you go to architecture school? And I'm like, <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> like, So I always liked the field. I always wanted to be in the field. Um, I asked to be put in the field. It was, I wanted to walk job sites. I wanted to be in it. I wanted to learn from the trades. And so I, I pushed for that. And, 
eventually, um, in 2015, I made the jump to uh, real estate and I, I worked in-house with an owner who was also a GC. And, and that was a, a crazy, incredible opportunity to really learn a lot of different aspects of, of how they manage the jobs. And, and and being an architect helped a ton. You know, being able to do code research in New York City was super useful. Um, and and really understanding like how things were built and how things were put together, what things to look for in the field. I mean, those things were were definitely transferred very well into um, going into the, the the owner side. And, and then I was there for a little bit, and then I had a lot of people, you know, sort of interested in in saying, "Hey, like I have this uh, renovation, or I have this other thing. Like, can you help me sort of sort out?" all of the paperwork and understand how the building department works. And and so I kind of started Mad Project thinking, I don't know exactly what I'm going to do with this, but let's, you know, let's start something and kind of do a few things here and there on the side. And then in 2018, I basically left that job. And then I was like, okay, what am I going to do? Am I going to, you know, stick with Mad Project and grow it as a thing? And then through Mad Project, I ended up being in house again for a different, super different type of developer. They're actually a hotel owner operator, national hotel owner operator. And it was just a tremendous opportunity from a bunch of different aspects. And so I took that on and and that was crazy fulfilling. And I did awesome work there. Um, technically I'm still in house with them, but you know, this year my goal was to really grow Matt Project and say, okay, now these are the tools that I have. I've been doing this for this time. I've been doing this also uh, on the side and having a project here and there. Now I'm going to really fully grow the company and take it on um, as a much bigger sort of full-time endeavor and, and kind of really think of ways that it's going to be meaningful and, and, and affect the industry. So that's kind of where I am right now. So that's super general. I mean, there's tons of details that I kind of... Yeah, I'm gonna, over we're going to unpack so. some of those. Sure, sure. Well, one, that is an awesome story. Uh, my first quick question before I kind of unpack some of what you just said is, what does the MAD project stand for? M-A-D-D, does it have some meaning behind it? No, there's no there's no meaning behind it. So you're just like the mad scientist <laughs> kind of. Exactly. So you said you studied New York. I mean, you studied architecture in New York City. Maybe just a quick uh, synopsis. What does studying architecture mean from your perspective? And is it something that you recommend other people doing? So I actually went to undergrad at the University of Miami, um, where I grew up in Miami. So that's and then I have a master's degree from MIT in urban design, essentially. And originally, my thinking of getting master's was to be in academia. So we all know how that turned out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but honestly, you know. I always tell people, you know, I, I get people to approach me a lot and say, "Hey, how'd you how'd you get to where you are?" and and you know, what, what should I do with my career? and and should I go to architecture school? And and really, architecture schools right now, I would say, have like a crazy breadth of of possibilities, both because they're so different. Like you could go to a school that is completely conceptual, that has it's super academic, it's you know, very philosophical almost. And where you're sort of designing in the abstract to to problem solve, or you could go to super, super technical schools where you're basically drafting on day one. And so, you know, it can mean so many different things depending on what you're after. I mean, a lot of people that I went to architecture school, 
pursued completely different careers. I mean, some are programmers, some went into finance, like after they graduated, some went into real estate, um, usually actually on the acquisition side, not even like on the architecture side. So it, it really, I think for me, and to tell you the truth, the tools that I picked up in architecture school, both on the technical aspect and the software side, have actually really, they're, they're just sort of very general tools, like the use of Photoshop, the use of AutoCAD, like the use of Revit, the, the use of like the software, like Excel, like you're, you're doing a lot of presentations, you're doing charts, you're showing like zoning, you're calculating all these things. And all of those technical bits, like you can, I mean, people went on to do graphic design and they weren't so far behind because they knew how to use Illustrator. They know how to use Photoshop. They had an eye for color and design. You know, and then you have sort of like the the constant critique, which is what you get in architecture school, right? Like you stand up in front of people and you present something you've been working on for the last six weeks and you get ripped apart. Yep. You're, you're presenting to like partners or to a client and then exactly. you're kind of preparing for your first draft to be totally torn apart. Right. And I think that's something that actually transfers to any industry. Like, so the technical bits of it, the, you know, the work ethic, the the rigor, you know, it's a very rigorous sort of, for the accredited schools, you know, there's an accreditation program and schools have to go through this whole entire thing every uh, number of years to, to remain accredited. And so, you know, architecture school could be so many things, you know, it's definitely something that it's a ton of work. It's, it's not an easy major to go into. To be accredited, it's either going to be a five-year degree or you need a four-year degree plus a three-year master's. I have a five-year degree from the University of Miami, which is a, it's the professional degree that, that they offer and it's accredited. And so, you know, if I, I tell people all the time, like, if you want to go full and you know you want to be an architect, you know you want to practice, you know you want to get licensed at some point, go to a five-year program because then you don't need the extra three years of school like, yeah. after the four. So you kind of like making it sound like, which is kind of how it seems like every industry is becoming, but technology has kind of really made it to where maybe more people can advance a lot quicker through architecture with some common tools that probably people aren't thinking of, like Photoshop and AutoCAD and some of the things that, you know, I think of 50 years ago when they didn't have, it was probably a way more specialized uh, environment. Is technology just kind of opening the, the ecosystem for more people to learn architecture quicker? I don't know that that it is. I think what it's doing is it's it's making it easier for people who study architecture to pivot quicker to other industries. And I think that you you know you do see that a lot in in the amount of people that go to architecture school and then do something else. Like I would say out of all the people that that and and just the, the other thing to keep in mind, for example, at the University of Miami when I graduated, I think there was like when we started it was like 92 of us, when we graduated it was like 53. Is and that, people lose interest. Well, the first two years are really rough. Like you, you also don't get a lot of choices as to what classes you take, because again, the curriculum has to be accredited nationally, and so you have to take certain classes. Period. Like there's no, no two ways about it. So, I think a mix of of the limiting curriculum for some people is is a deal breaker, and then the rigor for a lot of people at that age is a deal breaker. And I think out of the 53 of us that graduated, I would venture to say that maybe there's 20 of us that are in related field. And I would say out of those 20, there's maybe only 10 that are in architecture licensed. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. 
You you mentioned wanting to get into the field. What what job were you at, and what was your why was your desire to get into the field, and what does getting into the field mean to you? Well, I wanted to see because especially in architecture now, I feel like there's a lot of people sort of sitting in this office and they're kind of just drawing lines on a computer. And especially the younger people, like they don't know what the hell they're drawing. Right. <laughs> like you just just drew four lines for a wall. You have absolutely no idea what the hell this stands for. And so I wanted to get in the field and I wanted to see I wanted to see how those details looked. Like I wanted to see like how do you screw sheetrock onto studs? You know, how do you, how, what does exterior sheathing look like? Like, how do you flash a window? Like, all these things that when you're drawing them, it's so abstract that you do end up with some ridiculous stuff that people draw. And you're like, you know, you look at it and you're like, I don't even know how you would build this. Yep. I, I was like, literally, my next question is being a developer and having developed quite a bit, I feel like this art of there's like certain architects that you work with and they're like artists and they're not really designing to a budget or to something that's really feasible. They're just building these unbelievable structures that show well in the renderings. And then you go and like bid it out and it's, you know, twice as much as it should have been. And finding architects that can marry like a beautiful design and project with a budget, they're not as easy to find. And you kind of just said that is like designing things that just are not actual actually feasible if you're doing something in investment grade or something that needs to make money are you seeing right. that oh all the time i mean and that's that's exactly why i wanted to to get in the field right i wanted to go to a construction site and i wanted to do site observations during construction administration so that i could you know and i would come back to the office with like a ton of pictures and i would go to the principal in charge and i would sit with him and i'd be like can you please explain to me what it is that that I'm, you know, I'm pointing at in this picture, and he would laugh, and then he would explain to me. He would like, you know, sketch out a detail and tell me like, this is how this works, and this is how water doesn't get in, and and so that's how I, I really learned, um, you know, by by asking for it and to, to being out there. But I think a lot of people don't get that training, you know, unless you really ask for it, or unless you've spent a lot of time in the in the field to begin with. Um, I mean, that's why I always say that my path to where I am is very non-traditional because the majority of owners reps or or in-house ownership teams that, that do what I do usually come from the contractor side. They, you know, it's it's usually guys that have been in the field that have been um, site supers or or project managers, project engineers for a CM or for a GC and or for a trade. And then they kind of make their way up and get to the ownership side. So, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right in that there's there's definitely a lack, uh, I think, a little bit in, in the architectural training in, in the field. That's why I was talking about there's there's all these amazing architecture schools, really, that that kind of target the more sort of theoretical and, and kind of abstract side of architecture, problem solving, like really thinking of, of, the, of the problems in a different way. But in my mind, that's almost like a completely different discipline. It's an interesting thing because now, now that I'm on the owner side and I or and the owner's rep side and I look at projects from the owner side, I feel like I do a lot more architecting in the traditional sense, like in the way that you manage the project, the way you manage the team that is more traditional to the again, traditional sense of architecture. Like the architect used to be like master builder. It's not so much anymore. And so those architects are hard to find. And when you do find them, man, you hold on to them because they're they're awesome. Yeah. Okay, so in your words, what is the MAD project? What is that? What what does your company do? So what my company does is we we can divide what I do in two major uh, categories. So what we do is business consulting for 
real estate developers that are looking to clean up their construction design management side. And then the other one is just project management on the design and construction side. So why is an owner's rep useful and why should people want your services? Uh, that's kind of a general question, but but break it yeah. down. Yeah, no, and that's a great question. So typically, depending, I mean, and, and we've... I think we've had this sort of thing come up a bunch of times about, you know, uh, real estate developers and, you know, they're they're generalists, right? Like the things that you have to figure out on a daily are crazy. Like you have to go from, you know, understanding uh, demographics and understanding very general regional forces for your market to the acquisition, to the sale, to the, the actual transactions, to, you know, then the actual perform on the design, like what kind of building you're going to build there. Then you're going through... So it's like you have to be like an economist, an urban designer, uh, <laughs> an architect, a graphic designer, you know, and it's nuts, you know? Yep. And and as a developer, you know, I would say obviously not always true, but a vast majority of developers have sort of like a more business or finance background and less of like a on-the-field construction background. And so it's it's an entirely different discipline. So there's a lot of people that get to the construction side and it's sort of like obscure enough and different enough to what they're used to that they go one of two ways. They say, this is below me. This is beneath me. I'm not going to touch it. I want nothing to do with it. And I'll just trust that the CM will take care of it. <laughs> you know, It's kind of like out of sight, out of mind. I don't have to worry about it. And then there's people who say, you know what? I'm going to do this myself. <laughs> And I'm going to do a really good job. And some of those guys become amazing at it. Um, like the first uh, shop that I worked uh, for in, in the city, the guy was a one-man band. And this guy did everything. And and he was he was pretty terrifying and kind of ruthless and, you know, not, you know, a great example of everything. But it was really, he was very good at it. So no question. What was he building? There. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> the scariest things. It was large-scale repositioning of overbuilt office space specifically in the financial district got it and he was and he um, was converting it to a new use oh yeah he was converting it to luxury rentals wow like and we're talking about yeah we're talking about buildings that are half a million square feet like these <laughs> like it was it's not for the faint of heart so he's but, a one-man band and then he's just outsourcing every single component of the development well, um, what do you mean by... Like, he, he doesn't have in-house architect. He doesn't have in-house construction management. He doesn't have in-house design. No, so he was an owner GC. Got it. So he actually held all the contracts. And then they had sort of like a, a relationship with a CM that actually managed the field in the day-to-day, -day, but the contracts were held by the owner, which, you know, was a whole entire um, learning uh, experience as well there. And how that happens, and 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 what you know, what unique challenges that that gets. But so yeah, some people are absolutely able to figure it out. Some people just trust the CM and absolutely don't want to hear about it. And then every now and then, uh, depending on how large your project is, people either realize that trusting the CM is probably not a good idea, or trying to do it themselves is probably not a good idea. Because again, you're going into this whole entire different discipline that. Um, unless you have experience, there's just sometimes no way you're going to figure some of those things. So in those instances for the larger projects, like that's when, where an owner's rep comes in or when people decide to build their own teams in-house. And when you look at sort of the biggest developers in the country, you know, like the relatives of the world, they have their own internal construction 
crew. So if we took that project, because I feel like we're heading into at least over the next couple of years, we're probably not going to see as much ground up brand new stuff. But I think you will see a lot of repositioning of existing buildings. Uh, I mean, this is a perfect topic, you know, maybe converting office. When is the best time to hire you in a project? I would say before you hire your design team, I get involved in projects because we, so our services are super tailored. Like I don't have a Chinese menu you can pick out of. It's generally like, I'll talk to you, say, what do you need? 90% of the time it's like, I don't know, Antonia, I don't know what I need. Um, And so it's a series of conversations to really sort of drill down on a scope that fits your project and what you're looking for. So sometimes I'll do just feasibility. Like, you know, we'll look at, you're looking at a deal. You're like, I'm not even sure if it's a CapEx on this or, or, you know, or the construction, if it's ground up, is going to make this deal work. And so I'll look at those and I'll, we can help out. We can call a couple of people. We could do a number of things to help in that area. Also zoning studies, especially in New York, like, you know, those things are just day in, day out, general code uh, review, things like that. So we can do that early on. And that's the best time to really have that information because if you begin to foray into that after you've already bought the property, you may end up finding that there's certain things you can't do that kind of destroy the deal. Um, and I've seen that happen. You're in on the ground floor helping the developer think through their development, probably helping them build their budgets and their performa. And you're really part of that team that's saying like, this is a feasible project or this is not a feasible project. Yeah. I mean, that's. I would say that's absolutely the best time to get involved before you even hire anybody, uh, before you hire a design team, for sure. The irony of it is that sounds like such an easy answer is why would you not hire this on the ground floor yet? Like, you know, and like maybe a lot of listeners who are developers know that isn't always the case. They probably bring in folks like you once there's already a problem or they're trying to solve something that could have been done really early on in the process. Yep. That's that's kind of I would say at this moment, that's kind of 90 percent of the work that I have right now. Yep. That's 90% of the developers I talk to. They solve problems, you know, midway through a project. They they try and speed through due diligence and architecture and everything else. And then they're solving kind of costly problems during the job that could have easily been eliminated had they just planned better up front. Yeah. So, you know, the involvement for sure is is the earlier the better, but it's you know, it's kind of one of those things where people talk about investing and they say, when's the best time to invest? And it's like, well, 20 years ago would have been best, but Right now, second best, right? So it's a similar kind of thought. So I'm down here in Texas where, you know, I still think development's challenging, but as a Texan, you hear often that, like, if you think it's tough in Texas, just imagine developing in New York or LA or Seattle or some of these bigger mega cities. Can you kind of speak to, and, and you've done projects in multiple markets. Like, what is it like to get a project done in New York? Is it all about who you know? Is it, you you know, I, it just seems like when I talk to developers, they're, they're spending two to three times as long in pre-dev and getting ready for development than they do in other states. Well, I mean, I think there's obviously, well, New York has, I'd say right now, several different aspects. I think the one that everyone is kind of watching closely is this whole business of, permits being revoked after the fact. Um, and that's kind of terrifying, I think, all around, just because it's... it's Why is that crazy. happening? Well, uh, that's, a, that's a super complex question, I'd say. It's usually the community boards. I mean, not usually. It is the community boards. What's it, a community board? Odd. So New York is a 
divided into sort of different districts and there's sort of different neighborhoods and they basically have these tiny little governments of the community that basically gets together and they they have conversations about, you know, street cleanup and, you know, there's a bar opening up around the corner and, you know, we need a little bit more police patrolling or, you know, community stuff. And it's a difficult thing to sort of really sort of blanket again all the communities and, and when they get together and they, they sort of pull these things. But and and I, there's obviously that whole conversation about the the building on 66th Street that everyone has been looking that at. That really wow. tall building? Yeah, the really tall building um, with the mechanical void. <laughs> so the whole conversation, you know, the whole sort of conversation there, it's it's just like, well, this was approved by zoning. They approved a while ago too. I think it was originally approved, I want to say almost two years ago. And then to go down this road and 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 have developers end up in court fighting for things that have already been approved is sort of crazy. And the, I think the community board in, in that specific instance, they, you know, they say things like we don't want the, you know, the feel of the neighborhood to change. And, and obviously there's a million ways that you could possibly interpret that. I don't think any of those million ways are good. Uh, I think ultimately it's, it's not a fantastic attitude as a, as a growing metropolitan city, but you know, again, that's kind of my own opinion. And obviously I'm biased because I'm pro-development because that's how I make my living. Yep. <laughs> so <laughs> take that for what it's worth. But yeah, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a vast number of reasons why people don't want somebody to, you know, build something across the street. I just think that you, you never know. Do those community boards, like, uh, are they kind of in sync or do they each get to kind of make decisions in their own little vacuum? Well, the thing is that they don't even make the decisions. What they, they in this case, for example, in that the, the case of that uh, building, they actually uh, they sued the developer and they sued the city. Mm, got it. Um, That's terrifying. <laughs> they got the permit. They got the permit revoked. I mean, it's not even like they. It wasn't. They have no actual power to do it. They don't have the authority. They they don't have the authority to do it. But they carry a ton of power because a lot of the people that sit in those community boards you know, have influence otherwise. So it's, it's odd. I don't think people fully understand, unless you've been a developer, how much risk and, and dollars are spent before you even know if you have a project. And then to actually get a permit and then have it revoked at that point is a terrifying thought if that sets precedence for future deals. For sure. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. And they've been fighting this thing. They've been in and out of court for the last, I think, two years. So the amount of money they spent there, it's crazy. So, you know, you got that going on. And then you got, you know, the the the, the code itself, the zoning code, the, you know, the process of going through amending the code is a, is a thing. It's a, the ULERP process, and that's another sort of monster. And then there's, you know, the union, non-union world of New York, which is turning more open shop, I, I would What's say. What's that? Meaning you basically can bid it to either or. And you can have union and non-union trades uh, on site, um, essentially, whoever offers the best price and best terms. So that's that's been happening more and more. And I think, we're, you know, I, I think for the big projects, unless it's something institutional, you're not really seeing full union work much um, in the city. 
I love that you said you launched a, a consulting side of your business and I was on your website and I saw oh, yeah. <laughs> I could have a 30 minute, a 60 minute or a 90 minute. Could you just maybe give me a, a quick um, like what would be if I called for a 30 minute, what would I get as opposed to maybe the 90 minute? Like why why should I do either one? Right. So I, I created sort of these short descriptions on there to kind of guide people. And even then, like people still kind of message me and say, hey, I'm thinking about this. Which one should I pick? And so we end up, you know, deciding kind of together. Um, you know, I think it, it depends. You know, some people just want like a general kind of like, you know, walk me through what, um, you know, how do I pick between these two architects? Like I'm I'm torn. I don't know how to, you know, level them. I don't really know how to... Um, pit them one against the other and really kind of go apples to apples. And so that would be like a 30 minute conversation. If you have like a super specific question that we can kind of, yeah. And then I think for 60 minutes, it's more like if you say like, Hey, listen, like I'm, I'm trying to build like an anticipated cost report and I have no way. I I, I don't even know where to start. So uh, we may go through that and in 60 minutes and I could just walk you through those pro- that process and even create a tool together. If it, if it makes sense, like we could get on zoom and we could just play around on Excel and that could be that. I love that. I just had a like the most random idea when you said that and that this could be a terrible idea, but that question of how to how to compare architects and compare them apples oh, yeah. to apples is like you give the answer once, you write it down and then maybe you're able to sell the answer to that question for like, you know, 5 bucks every time somebody wants to hear that question on like <laughs> Gumroad or something. I feel like that is that is a question you're probably going to answer a 100 different times. For sure. And you know, but the, the the thing about it, Chris, that is extra valuable to people is that that answer could be a hundred different yep, answers. It's true. Depending on, I always tell people like, it depends on your shop. Like, what are your capabilities? Like, how, how much manpower do you have? Like, what are you, what resources are you going to commit to solving this problem? And so at that point, the answer could be super different. And actually, that's a great tie into the 90 minute thing, because the 90 minute is sort of for when you have a much more let's say you, you're looking at a deal and you want to go through the zoning of it. You want to go through like maybe like an estimated budget of it. And you want to go through like more comprehensive sort of, but still specific, you know, that's the kind of thing that we can go through in 90 minutes, but also on the business side of it, you can say, Hey, like I want to build a better project management system. I, I, I need to sort of restructure my team and we can have a chat about it in those 90 minutes. And one of the cool things about the consults though, is if in those, 30, 60 or 90 minutes, we end up having a chat and, you know, at the end of the conversation, you know, the client turns around and says, hey, you know what, like, let's turn this into a real thing. Let's implement it. I want to hire Matt Project to work on this. You'll get, re- like, you'll get a credit for that consult in as part of your first invoice. So it's, you know, it's more to kind of open up the services to people that perhaps don't want to enter into a multiple month contract for the consulting fees, which depending on the scope can be you know, they're, they're considerable. Let's talk about contractors for a bit. So to kind of set the stage, we can talk about it in multiple ways, but you know, when you're doing a deal, you have, you could have upwards of 50 to a hundred different subs and they're all on a timeline. And if one sub is late, then the next sub might go start another job because, you know, they got to make money too. And so maybe we start with maybe the most common fault when doing contracting is What's the best way to hold contractors accountable to their timeline? Well, I mean, there's a couple, again, sort of 
tough to blanket because again, it would be super different if you had a, you know, a $2 million project versus a $300 million project. So for the sake of the rest of the podcast, let's assume like a certain size project so that we answer questions we maybe to that. What, what size of project should we uh, land on? Like I think fifty million. Okay, a fifty million dollar. What kind of what what kind of project are we going to talk about? So I don't do hospitals, and I don't do heavy industrial. So basically, almost everything else. Office is a hot topic right now. So we'll just say a fifty million dollar office redevelopment. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. So for that, you want to have a really strong contract. Period. You want to have a really strong schedule from the beginning and you want to go through it. Like you don't just receive the PDF and you leave it in your inbox and you say, okay, fine. And you sign that contract. That's not how it works. Like you have to sit and you have to walk, have the contractor walk you through it and really suss it out. Really understand the sequencing. Like if you need to, and I tell people this all the time, especially owners who sometimes are kind of shy to, to, to ask the questions, but Literally sit there and tell, ask the contractor, like, hey, walk me through how you're going to build this, this building. Walk me through how you're going to do this renovation. Who comes first? Who comes second? Then, And even just, even if you don't know, like, sometimes you'll get answers that make no sense. And and calling them out and being like, well, how does that make any sense? Like, you'll often, you'll often be in the right. Like, <laughs> it's pretty surprising if you just kind of sit through and read the PDF that you got. So the first thing is strong contract, strong schedule. Have uh, weekly meetings. Walk the site weekly, weekly, and 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 talk about you know what's going on. You know, and and I don't and I don't mean like micromanage to the point where like oh the tile guy was supposed to be here. I don't see him on site today. Like where did he go? Um, every day because that you'll probably get kicked out of your own job site <laughs> real quick. Well, I was just going to say, uh, and this was kind of a popular kind of question that came up on Twitter, but. If you kind of had to bullet, like, what are three things that make for a really strong contract and and maybe answer it from somebody that maybe has not done a lot of development? Like, what are the three things that make a great contract up front? Unambiguous. Okay. Which means that the terms are are clear and uh, you want to make sure that you don't attach exhibits to the contract that contradict the contract. So that's a big one. And even when you're doing con- like consulting contracts, like with your architect, just make sure... And I always tell people the easiest way to do this is if you ever get a proposal, just cross out all the terms and write terms by contract. That way, they're only in one place. So unambiguous. That's, that's major because that, that, that'll save you a lot of heartache. Um, the second thing is you need to have a termination for convenience clause. So meaning you can terminate that contract whenever you want for whatever reason you want. Typically, that will require that you pay for the work up to that point, which is fair. And typically, it will require that you give a notice. Typically, you know, it's 30 days, I would say, for, for uh, termination for convenience. Typically, those clauses are mutual. And so that means that, you're, you know, you're, the other party may walk away uh, for convenience at any time. And the third point that I would say is you should make sure that it's appropriate for what you're doing. Um, and that's a, a little bit of a harder one to to sort of suss out. But I think if you have a really good construction council, and I always tell people like construction council is not Aunt Marie that also does your taxes and also like helps you with your, you know, landscaping contract. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, construction council. Um, and construction council can be a lot less expensive than people think. 
So it's worth every penny. Like you can have a pretty good contract review for under two grand. I mean, that's that's how crazy that is. So are you usually GCing a project or are you usually the person that is hiring the GC? I'm the person hiring the GC or the person helping the owner hire the GC. How do you do a job of under... Because I think one of the misnomers is you hire the GC, but then the GC is in control of hiring all their own subs. So how, from your perspective, do you get comfortable that the GC is going to hire qualified subs that'll do the job right, that have experience when you don't really have control over that? Like, What do you do up front to make sure that they're going to be a great GC? Well... Obviously, you you go through and typically you don't hire a GC like on the first meeting. It varies, but I would say the process of hiring a GC takes between, you know, six weeks at minimum for a tiny, tiny project to four months um, when you're still kind of playing the field and dating around. And you're looking at their track record, what they built. For sure. You're looking at their track record, what they build. They have to bond the job, right? So a lot of lenders have bonding requirements. So that that kind of has to... That puts kind of the, the onus on the contractor basically requests that, especially the large trades, they have to bond the job. So if for whatever reason you ever see that someone is unwilling to bond the job, like for, especially for the big, big trades, like let's say you have a massive concrete superstructure and your concrete guy doesn't... I mean, that would just never happen. Yep. But, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> Like that just they just bond the job, and so that kind of de-risks some. But at the end of the day, like yeah, it's it's a risk. One of the things that I tell people is when you're when you're a real estate developer, at one point or another, that general contractor or that construction manager, they are controlling the majority of your investment into that project. So you gotta watch them, (laughs) like. That's, you know, and that that kind of goes back to that question of like, what's the benefit of an owner's rep, you know, watching them. That's a big one. And and having said that, and I don't think I mentioned it uh, before, but sometimes people do call me and say, hey, I want to work with you. And then they explain to me what the project is. And I say, you know what? You don't need me. Like, if it's something small enough and it's something that I think, you know, and, and you kind of have a gauge of the person you're talking to and you say, you're smart enough. You've been able to figure out all these things. Like, I can give you a little bit of guidance here and there, point you in that direction. And otherwise, like, you're good on your own. You know, the biggest thing I think as an owner's rep for me is I hate spending money on things you don't need. That's like a pet peeve, like drives me nuts. And so like, and that includes my services. Like I will often tell people like, you don't need me, you know, and I'll either refer them to an architect, which is what they're actually looking for. Or I'll tell them like, Hey, go, go and look at these resources and that'll be sufficient. So I'm going to ask a very elementary question here for somebody that might not know what does bonding mean? So you're, let's say you're a concrete guy and you you basically have to build up your reputation and your credit and and your financials and everything. And once you're in a good spot and you're let's say you're growing, there's in order to be in a big job, they ask you to bond a job. And so what that means is a, a bonding agency will basically look at your financials. They'll basically vet you. They'll basically say like, hey, if this guy defaults, like we'll pay for the default. Essentially. Got it. So it's like That's an insurance super- policy. It's like it's sort of like an insurance policy, um, but it actually has some nuance that is slightly different than an insurance policy. Like there's a lot of SDI, which is subcontractor um, insurance, and that's a whole other program that contractors enter into that that can get super boring and really specific real quick. So, but yeah, bonding is is kind of that. It's like you're having this agency guarantee that you are 
capable, both from a financial, but also from a track record standpoint to do the job. What incentive structures work best with contractors? Well, I think obviously for a $50 million office building, let's say, I would say you're going to want a cost plus contract that then you amend into a GMP and then you have shared savings. Um, and that's, I'm sure we'll, we'll probably unpack that one, but that's kind of generally what I would recommend. Let's unpack it right and, now. Um, all right. So there was that question about like, what's the difference between a lump sum and a, and a GMP? And I think that's a fantastic question. What, what that question actually really is, what's the difference between a cost plus and a lump sum? Because a GMP is a feature that you add at the end of a cost plus contract. So that can sort of help us get to the trajectory of understanding better the difference between what ultimately ends up being a GMP and um, and a lump sum. So typically a lump sum is you say, contractors, man, these are my drawings. How much for this? And they're going to say $30 million. And typically those are closed book, meaning you can't, you can't go in there and audit them. Um, I absolutely do not recommend that ever, ever. So like, I'll just put that out there. Um, Just don't do that. A cost plus is basically, um, the biggest difference is that it's essentially, it's it's what it sounds like. It's an open book. You know what it costs to do the work. Plus, whatever fees you agree to pay the general contractor to, you know, for overhead and profit and for their general conditions. So it's the cost of the work plus whatever you pay the contractor. It just so happens that at the end or close to the end, you kind of shake hands and you say, okay, well, we're not going to go above this price, period. And that kind of, you know, that has its own sort of um, conversation. But the biggest difference, the two biggest differences between what is a lump sum and a cost plus to GMP is that the closed book nature of the lump sum versus the open uh, book nature of the cost plus GMP and the completion of your drawings. And so this is why a lump sum is sometimes okay for smaller projects, like smaller renovations. I would say anything under $4 million is pretty good mm-hmm. to, to, to stick with a lump sum, especially if it's something that you're super familiar with, where you know you generally really understand the costs, you feel like your drawings are in a really good place. For that, it's appropriate. And I've done a lot of lump sum work but my lump sum form contract is actually open book. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, for whatever that's worth. Um, on the cost plus GMP, it's fully open book from the beginning. And and so that kind of puts, you know, the onus on the contractor to really get you the best pricing for each of the trades. Why, why are they incentivized to get the best pricing if it's a cost plus? Isn't the more expensive the trade is, the more they're going to make? Well, not unless you put a GMP on it. Right? So what's Which a GMP? I, I, let's let's just unpack that real quick. Right. So GMP is a guaranteed maximum price. Got it. Right. And so what you do is you start out typically with a construction management agreement. You contractor works with you through the creation of the drawings. So you got a lot of feedback and you get a lot of budget feedback as you go. And then when you're kind of approaching sort of, you know, a, a comfortable percentage of your construction documents, then you begin buying out trades, especially the trades that are super long lead, like your elevators, your windows. If you're doing any kind of specialty things, if you have like a, an industrial kitchen in your in your project or something like that, those are the things that you're going to want to buy way ahead of time because they have a long lead anyway. So 
And you probably have that information already. You, you also probably have your foundation information by that point also. So these are kind of the things that you can start buying. And then when you get to around 80, 85%, depending on your level of comfort with your drawings and, and with the fact that your scope is not going to change much, typically around that point, even lenders are kind of require you to be at that point for you to then send sign a GMP so that your GMP is no, not overinflated. Now, when you create the GMP, typically you have stipulations of shared savings. And so that means that at the end of the job, if there's any money left over, you're going to split it between the contractor and the owner. And that money comes specifically from contingency and general conditions. And then you put a stipulation in there that you cannot replenish your general conditions with your contingency. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> a lot of people miss that one. And then it's like, oh, crap. Like, um, you know, you, now you're just going from one bucket to the other. So, and typically you can have some sort of negotiation there about what, you know, what percentage of your general conditions you can replenish from your contingencies. Sometimes you'll put like a cap on it. You said you, no more than 30% of the total initial budget for your um, GCs could be replenished. But it's negotiable and, and it's negotiable in context. And that's one of the things that I always tell people, like you can't just negotiate your shared savings without looking at what fee are you paying this guy, Right. right. Because you say, okay, your fee, let's say you got super lucky and it's super low and you, well, $50 million, let's say your fee around there would be about 4%, right? But maybe you say, hey, you know what? Instead of doing 70, 30 savings, shared savings, like 70 for the owner, 30 for you, let's do, let's reduce your fee to 3% and let's make the savings more like 60, 40, right? So those things are always related and that, that's why I always... When I get those blanket questions of like, oh, what's a, what's the percentage fee that you should be looking at? It's like, well, man, it depends on so many factors. So that's kind of very, very generally what a, a GMP is. So if you were going into a new market uh, where you didn't know the GCs in that local market, and you had kind of said a few minutes ago that it could take anywhere from six weeks to four months to hire a GC, probably four months for the larger projects, and we'll stick to the project that we've been talking about. If I if I ask the simple question again, like what are the three kind of main interview questions or what are some of the big things that you want to hear out of a GC to start getting comfortable with someone you haven't done business with? Like what, what are you asking them? Right. So you want to have good references. And generally, I rarely, I mean, it's good to get like references from people. Um, sometimes I'll call them, but I rarely do. What I do is I find what jobs they were on, I find what trades they worked with, and then I call the trades if I know someone. Or even if I don't know someone, I'll find out, you know, find out what, what people's experience have, have been with working with um, the different people you're, you're interviewing. So that's, that's the first one. First, uh, good references, ease of communication and collaboration. And that's a massive one. Because again, it is a process that takes some time. You do have a lot of interactions with these guys. And if, you know, if they're taking three weeks to get back to you on a simple question, like there's no way you're going to build a building together. So things like that. Um, and I think the last thing would be, um, yeah, transparency. I, I think that that you don't, you don't want to work with shady people. You don't want to have, you know, it's sort of, you want to sit at the table with somebody where you say, I want you to make money. How much money are you making? And are we both comfortable with that? Because, you know, again, a CM at one point or another is going to be controlling the majority of your investment into this project. So you need to be comfortable with how much money they're making. Yep. I love it. And then one more question kind of on the contracting side. You you kind of kept saying multiple times drawings in a good place. What do drawings look like that are in a good place versus a bad place? Well, you definitely want to have the majority of your details 
figured out, um, you know, a lot of where your windows hit your slab or if you have a curtain wall kind of detail, what that actually looks like, what your storefronts look like, your waterproofing. Those things are are, are things that really, um, like if you miss like a, let's say, a, I think I, there was a project I worked on where somebody missed like a flashing detail and it was like $200,000 difference. And it was literally like a line in a drawing. Yep. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> crazy like literally a line yep. <laughs> it wasn't like it wasn't like a whole chunk of the building was missing it was you know things like that so you definitely want good quality control on your drawings um and in some instances that's also where there's a value in having an owner's rep or having somebody who is able to kind of third party do quality control on your drawings right so you're basically you're you're basically helping the owner say your your drawings are in a good place now these are going to stand the test of right. the project Absolutely. And, you know, you hear crazy things. You hear people say, oh, we went to a GMP with 70% drawings. And I'm like, well, that's not a GMP. There's nothing G about it. Like, what can you guarantee if they're not done designing? Like, you know? So the G and GMP my, is important. The G is very important, for sure. The G. Okay, so you go into a new city, you're looking for a, a GC. Is there like a public database? Like, how do you know what trades worked on a certain project? Is it somebody, is it like open source? Anybody can go figure it out? Or uh, you ask. You ask. You ask well, the I mean, GC? Ask. Oh, yeah. You just say, give me your list of subs on that project. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And and again, if the guy turns around and says, well, I'm not giving you that, like, that's a terrible sign. And if they're up front and you say, oh, oh yeah, this is a list, but I would never recommend that electrician, you know, like... They ended up in a fist fight during like one of the like foreman meetings. You know, I, they were unprofessional. Then you're kind of going to take it with a grain of salt. Like you, you're going to be like, well, you know, that's good to know, actually. So, you had a tweet the other day that that got some popularity on a slab edge mistake that cost sixty thousand dollars. <laughs> will you will you yeah. uh, unpack that for what happened, and then maybe if if there's been any other kind of painful stories that or lessons learned that maybe we could dive into one extra lesson that you've learned along the way. Sure, sure. So that one that was like my first big mistake in the field. I I was working at this big architecture firm in the city. I kept begging to be put in the field. I was like, put me in the field, put me in the field. And they're like, no, you're like in your twenties and you're you know you're not you know no. And I was like, put me in the field. And I, I kind of stalked the the principal's office. Um, he's the, the kind of the director of, of construction administration. And uh, I kind of stalked his office and waited for him to go in there. And I was like, look, I really, I really want to be in the field. And so he's like, fine. Um, I think I wore him down. And so he put me on this project. It was a small project. It had a historic facade that we had to keep. So that was actually super cool because, you know, the whole building was gone in the back. And then you had these bracing just kind of holding up this historic facade. So it was, it was pretty neat. And he was like, well, we need someone to do CA for this, but it's really small, so and it's perfect for you. So I was like, fine. So I, I get on the project. I'm super excited. I'm, I'm on site, like, you know, maybe twice a week. I was actually really wanted to be there. And part of uh, construction administration is approving shop drawings. And so shop drawings are typically what the subcontractors put together to get approval on the specific trade. So there's the architect's drawings that basically show intent, and then there's the shop drawings that basically show how they're actually going to do it. So as the architect, you have to review shop drawings in order to verify intent. And when you're doing concrete, you get slab edge drawings. And typically slab edge drawings are exactly what it sounds like. It's basically a drawing with all the edges of the slab. So where the slabs end, where the, where the you know openings end and begin, 
And that kind of stuff has to be coordinated with mechanical openings, with stair openings. Any kind of opening that you have on the slab has to be coordinated on slab edge drawings because that's what the concrete guy is going to use to build. So at the time, and I, I wasn't part of the team that that designed the project. Um, and not to, not to excuse myself of the responsibility yeah. because at the end of the day, it was my fault. But they did the whole project on AutoCAD. And this is like in the ancient times when you did projects on AutoCAD. And so in AutoCAD, you have a lot of less coordination between those drawings because it's literally a completely different drawing. Instead of where on Revit, which is what most people use now, um, it's a it's a model. And so you can see the different aspects of the model um, but it's literally in only it's one data set rather than being in different places. So the CAD drawings had had some updates to the floor plan, but those updates were never updated on the slab edge drawings. And so when I received slab edge drawings from the concrete guy, I checked them versus the floor plan. And yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we know what happened next. And then we know what happened. They ended up making the stair opening too large. Um, actually, no, they ended up making the stair opening too small. And so the stair was too large. So, you know, first they pour the slab and then the guy comes back with the actual stair form. And when he formed the stair, he was like, I don't think this works. And so I, I you know, I get this panicked phone call and, and then I panicked and then I realized that it was a mistake that I had made. So they had to chop out a whole chunk of the stair. The structural engineer had to come up with a detail, how to dowel in the new stair. It was a mess. It was so bad. I, I, and I had to coordinate all these people, right? Because now, like, it was my my mistake. So it was rough. I mean, I was, I, I kind of beat myself up about it for a while. And uh, my boss at the time, the same guy that would, I would take photos and he would walk me through what what I was looking at in the field. He was, he was amazing about it. Honestly, like, he was like, he was like, look, I, and he had told me like the first or second day I was working for him. He's like, you're gonna make mistakes. He's like, but the quicker you own them, the better. Yep. Take accountability. Um, for sure. And, you know, I, I owned it right away. I walked into his office. I'm like, boss, I'm like, I screwed up. And he was like, what'd you do? <laughs> he was really amazing about it. He was like, well, this is a great opportunity for you to barter. He was like, go, go negotiate. Yep. Go find 60,000 you know? somewhere else. Right. And so I, I think, you know, it ended up being a successful sort of moment for me. I think it, it really kind of, in for me, it, it made me feel like part of the team because also like, People are making mistakes all the time. And 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 how you get through them as a team is really what determines the success of the job. But I was like, how much did this really cost? And he was like, yeah, it was like 60, 60 grand. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> um, so that was that was kind of the first big one. I think the most recent one that that was really kind of like that moment where you're just like, oh my gosh. I was doing a super high-end tenant improvement for a restaurant. And, you know, we had, we had no time to do it. We had a massive, a major opening and we had five months from the time the design was finalized to when we had to open, which is crazy when you're talking about super, super custom millwork. Um, and it wasn't just any kind of millwork. It was Corian. And I don't know if you're any familiar with that, but it's, it's like a solid surface material, super difficult to, not everyone works in it. And even in New York, it was tough. So we're rushing through this project and, you know, I'm coordinating everything. I coordinate the design team. I, I, you're kind of rushing around and, and you're, I was sort of directing a lot of the trades directly kind of in tandem with the, with the CM that we had on the project. And 
we're, you know, I'm on, I'm in the field, you know, it's crazy. I'm in the field every day because it's the timeline was nuts. And I, I had sequenced everybody and I was really good. And I was like, yeah, we're getting this. The kitchen was super expensive. It was like over a million dollar kitchen. It was a guest facing kitchen. And we had pushed the kitchen. We had paid all of the expediting fees for all the equipment because we had no time. So a lot of money was on the schedule already. And I'm standing there and the kitchen guy comes up to me. And he's like, hey, so um, when's the tile guy going to do the, the back wall? And I looked at him and I was like, I was like, let me get back to you on that. And I realized at that moment that I had completely missed the back wall. We all did. the So there was no no specified tile for it. I hadn't bought tile. I hadn't bought the install. It was about a thousand square feet of tile. And I had the kitchen guy ready to install the material like in two days. But they needed to tile the back wall before the kitchen guy could come in. Yep. Mm. And I'm standing there like, okay. And this is super, again, super high end. All the materials were like, you know, we flew, this, like, we flew a bunch of stone from Italy to make the table. It was insane. And so I'm like, okay, I, I tell the guy, I'm like, give me, give me half an hour and I'll get back to you. So I pick up the phone. I called my tile guy in New York. I said, Marty, give me three really beautiful white subway tiles that you have in stock. Because <laughs> I need them tomorrow. And he was like, he was like, you kill me. <laughs> He's like, what are you doing to me? <laughs> I'm like, send the samples to the designer. Um, then I called the designer who was also super, you know, super, super high end, but they, you know, they were pretty good about this one. And I was like, look, I'm sending three samples. You got to pick something like literally in the next three hours. And then, and then I had to call the, the, the operator of the restaurant. And I had to say like, Hey, look, um, we found this really great opportunity to, instead of doing stainless steel on your back wall, we can do these beautiful hand cut subway tile. Like, what do you think? And he was thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> So it worked out. Like, well, it worked out, but that you know that moment when I had the kitchen guy literally tell me like, oh well, you know, I need the tile to go down before I can actually put my stuff in. I just I, I like you know finding a thousand square feet of available tile that was acceptable to super super high end designer. You know, it was one of those like super high consequence moments, right? Like if all of a sudden the tile guy had turned around and been like, oh no, like you can't get the tile for the next week, that that would have been it. And we we made it work, but it was that moment was was kind of nuts, and and that was all you know. The the designers missed it. I missed it too. I mean, seriously, I I didn't even I hadn't hadn't even come on my radar until that second. So those moments definitely happen. We kind of talked about this when you were set when we were talking about signing the contract, but and not that that example that you just gave was necessarily a change order, but how do you deal with change orders if there's ambiguity in the contract? And you kind of said, I don't sign contracts with ambiguity, so maybe... There you go. <laughs> but typically something comes up, especially in like residential development, where once the house is being built, the countertops that they originally thought they wanted, now they want something more expensive, but you know... They don't want to pay for it or whatever. Like, how do you deal with change orders? Well, I mean, honestly, it's really part of the relationship that you've built up to that point. Um, obviously, step number one is you don't put ambiguity in the contract. But at the same time, if you go in and you begin to change materials and all of a sudden you want things that are more expensive, you also have to be honest with yourself, right? And maybe, you know, maybe you're able to figure out a better way. Maybe you say, okay, um, I now I want these you know, crazy marble countertops that are twice as much as the other one. So I'll pay you the delta and the material cost, but don't charge me the markup. 
And if you have a good relationship with the with the contractor, they might be fine with that. They might they might say, you know what, that's okay. Don't worry about it for this for for the countertops because I know you really want them. They're gonna make you really happy. But you you don't get there without having built the, the relationship. That's that's what I always tell people. Like, and that's also why the whole experience of 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 interviewing the contractor, it, you know, is lengthy and 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 it, it's very telling of of things like attitude because at the end of the day. Those are the things that are going to get you out of the sticky situations. Like you're, you know, for me, if I didn't have the relationship with the tile guy that I did, both with the the vendor and then also with the installer, because I was able to call the installer and say, "Hey, guy, I got a thousand square feet of tile that you knew nothing about, and can you get a guy here tomorrow?" And you know, he's like, he's like, crap. He's like, let me change things around for you. But he was willing to do that because you, you've gotten there somehow. So that's you know, that's a big part of it. So we're going to have two more questions on kind of the construction world and your world, and then we're going to move into some fun personal questions. Um, Awesome. What next-gen construction form does she see having the most viable cost savings over the next five to 10 years? Modular, cross-slam timber, or something else? That's an interesting one. I think if we get a little bit smarter about the way we use modular, that may have an impact. And what I mean by that is less trying to solve for the entire unit as modular, but, you know, bathroom pods are, are amazing. So if we begin to find sort of, I don't know, the bedroom pod instead of like the apartment pod, I think, it, you know, if we're able to get modular to a place where it gives us a little bit more flexibility, I think that may have an impact. And, and that's going to have to come with a lot of regulatory, you know, like building code sort of progress because a, a lot of what keeps modular kind of stymied is is the fact that the that the building code is is tough and not necessarily made for an inspector to go to a factory to check out your bathrooms <laughs> instead of going to your website and to your job site. So that one. Um and then, you know, cross laminated timber, I mean what they're doing in Canada is pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. Um what is that? Building, they're they're building like tall residential buildings with it. <laughs> And they have, you know, the whole sort of sustainability aspect behind it, you know, the way that it's, it's harvested in a sustainable manner, um, the, you know, the wood's harvested in a sustainable manner. And then the way that the plants are run is sort of in a more environmentally kind of conscious way. And so I think that, you know, again, CLT has a potential there, but again, the code in the U.S. is still not quite where it needs to be in order for it to be implemented widely. So that's that's kind of, those are the ones I see, but I, I honestly, I feel like construction in general, is is just so specific. It's so site specific and so project specific, money specific, market specific that it's tough. Yep. As and they're building those buildings out of timber, which is just uh, the cost savings is coming from not having to use steel or concrete. Yeah, and and it makes coordination a little bit easier. Penetrations through timber is is different than penetrations through like QDEC or or either even through like if you have a, a PT a post tension uh, system like you know penetrations and coordination with MEP is just a lot harder. Are you seeing any signs that construction costs will come down? I think one of the questions was that they haven't come down in hotel, retail, office, and it looks like the new development pipeline starting to to slow. Is are you seeing costs uh, starting to come down? Or are you expecting them to come down, or what are you seeing? Not yet. Lumber pricing is still it's come down, but it's still up higher than it was in March. So that that's one aspect, um, and there's a bunch of factors that go into that. Also, 
you know, the labor force for construction has been highly reduced. You know, a lot of people just don't um, don't necessarily feel safe, especially like in the hotel space where a lot of the crews that you get are traveling crews. And so, you know, they, they don't feel comfortable flying or or even the companies have sort of had to kind of uh, put contingencies in place and lay people off or or furlough people. And so you don't have the same amount of labor that you used to. Um, I'm actually doing a couple of things in, in the New York metro area. It's been actually very challenging to get um, labor. We need to get making uh construction labor sexy again i feel like exactly we've lost all yeah. those folks and you know and i think we will um especially with like whenever oil kind of goes down because a lot of a lot of the people who work in oil come from construction so you know those those people that typically were in construction went to oil because it was it, they could make more money on it now that oil is not as profitable they might come back to construction so I think that's something that you, we are beginning to see in those submarkets where oil is super heavy. I know, like um, you know, West Texas, you're going to see some of that. You're going to see some of that in Montana. So, do you have a morning routine or something that gets you going <laughs> every day? I don't. I mean, I kind of sort of do. Um, you know, my husband makes breakfast and coffee, and that's kind of it. But I start somewhat early. I started typically um, my calls start at 7, 7.30, three days out of the week. And then the other two days start at 8. So, you know, I, I'm more... And because I've been working sort of not, you know, remote slash traveling for two years now, my my routine is sort of like all over the place. Um, there's just certain things that I want to make sure that I get done every day. And then, and that's a little bit more. Um, I think when I've tried writing out a schedule and following a routine and it just stresses me out so much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like it really does. And and I don't feel like I get any more done that way. Um, it's sort of something that I, I always say, like, I want to do these things, but then I, I, I kind of don't end up finding. And I think I want to do them because like all the really crazy, super smart people that I look up to do them. Um, I don't know that they serve me. Um well, given that a lot of what I do is um, at the service of a client and, and it's sort of a different kind of, um, you know, demanding in that aspect. Um, while at the same time being entrepreneurial and, and kind of, you know, I like I can go, um, you know, play tennis in the middle of the day if I don't have any meetings. So it, it, there's bits and pieces to it. What's the best advice anybody's ever given you? Oh, Oh, that's a tough one. <laughs> if you think that's tough, just wait till the next two questions. Oh, man. I'm kidding. Um, the best advice, understanding that you're not for everybody. I think that that has been pretty good. Is there a book you've read, either business, personal, that's had an impact on you? The Art of Asking, Amanda Palmer. What's that? What's it about? It's sort of how she gets into being a living statue. Um, in, 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 in Boston and, or in Cambridge and how she, you know, how that is basically, an, it's, it's asking, right? Like, cause you're out there and you're performing and you're, and you're asking people to, you know, to, to give you money, to pay you for what you're doing. And, and so, you know, she goes into how that, the, the whole psyche of that. And I, and I, to me that that's been uh, massive. And I, and I think that really sort of being comfortable with asking is, is a big thing. 
so we found each other through Twitter. And so I just wanted to, it's the first time I've actually asked this, but how has Twitter impacted you and your business? <laughs> <laughs> it actually, it's been pretty, uh, it's been pretty big, uh, honestly. Um, and I've, I've only been on Twitter since I think May of this year. And I think part of the context of having this conversation with you and the context of, you know, thinking of, of the book now, The Art of Asking and Twitter, it sort of comes full circle for me in a way because a lot of being part of Twitter and even how I found you was asking. I said, hey, guys, like, what's, you know, what should I, you know, what should I look into if I'm, if, if the podcast is the next frontier? And so that's how we ended up being connected. So asking, asking has been a massive thing about Twitter. And, and so Twitter has had this sort of impact. It's kind of like a cycle where, you know, the more you give, the more you get kind of thing. And it's also been sort of the the wonder of realizing that that people want to hear what you have to say. And so that kind of, again, cycles into the confidence of your own business and into, you know, understanding that 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 you are where you are for a good reason. And so that that kind of feeds the whole like, okay, maybe the next goal can be bigger because all these people, you know, not that you need the external validation, but it's it's more like the I'm putting it out there. And and it's having a, a positive effect on the community too. And so it's like you're almost doing a disservice by not sharing. So it it's been kind of wonderful in that way. Um, I've I've had a fantastic experience, and I think it's, it's had a tremendous experience on my business too because I'm getting all this feedback about things that I should do. Like the whole consult service was just a couple people send me messages and say, "Hey, look, I'd love to talk to you for an hour and pay for your time." And I, that had never occurred to me. And so that that's that's fantastic. And and listening to them and, and going ahead and building that into my website and doing it, like you know, that's really fun. That's incredible. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. yeah. All right. We have one more question. If you had a billboard on a big highway in New York City where millions of cars go by every week and you could put anything you wanted on it, what would you put on it? Ooh. Oh man! <laughs> Hire a construction manager. I'm kidding. Uh, no, I. I mean, gosh, that's a tough one. I'm, I. I'll use one that um that is kind of on my mind right now because there's this whole other bit that we could talk about for hours on with about cost management and software and all the super geeky stuff that um that we could get into. But I would put better project management starts here. I love it. And then a link to madproject.com, baby. Maybe, or maybe to um, something else that I'm working on. Oh, we might need to do a, <laughs> a we might need to do a, a, a part two to this next year. Oh man, that would, that would be awesome. How can people no, reach sure. you? People can reach me. I mean, on Twitter and um, my email, Antonia at madproject.com with a double D. Or just on my website, um, madproject.com. It's I'm fairly easy to reach. I'm I would say I'm, I'm I respond to you know all the reasonable inquiries I receive. I love it. This has been an awesome conversation, and I'm I'm literally making a note that we're gonna catch up again in the first quarter next year. Whenever your uh, your new ideas maybe surfaced itself, and we're gonna talk about it. Yeah. Thank you so much, Chris. Looking forward to it. All right. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye. 
Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.